This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's make sure that we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to worship you this morning, that we have the freedom in this nation still to gather together and freely Uh, explain and teach your word that we can understand it and apply it in our lives and that we are free from government interference. Father, we continue to pray for our nation that that the freedoms that have been so uh, uh, sacrificially earned and purchased for us on the battlefield by so many who have given the ultimate sacrifice that these freedoms might continue and that we might have a uh, restoration of spiritual, positive spiritual uh, volition in this country, but even if not, that those of us who are believers might continue to uh, seek our total sustenance and happiness and security in our relationship with you. Father, we do thank you for your word that you have given us. We pray that as we study it this morning, we can understand these things, that they would radically transform the way we think, that we might conform our thinking to your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we continue our study in the Gospel of John in terms of Christ's post-resurrection appearances. Now, last time and time before, we discussed the doctrine of faith, what faith means, that faith is intellectual apprehension of truth, which means that it is something that we do with our mind, And in that discussion of faith, I interacted some with a phrase that that many people sort of react to when they talk about faith. What does it mean to to have faith? And and I think that faith means to just have intellectual assent to the gospel. A lot of people have a problem with that and and argue in the literature with the definition of faith as intellectual assent. I really want to make it clear what that means. That's not academic understanding. So I think that's what most people mean when they use the phrase intellectual assent to the gospel. They really are saying, well, it's not just academically understanding the gospel. It's not what intellectual assent means. It's a phrase that emphasizes, first of all, the operation or function of the mind, of the intellect, that, that there is a proposition that is clearly understood, intellectually perceived, And assent means to accept it as true. Now, the proposition 
is that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. The reason I say it is trust in a proposition is because not one of us have personally had a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ at the point of salvation. A relationship with Jesus Christ is the result of salvation. But none of us have seen him. None of us have touched him. None of us have heard him. All we have is the witness of the apostles in the scriptures. And they have told us what they have seen and what they have heard and what they have touched. And they have explained to us clearly that the means of salvation is faith alone and Christ alone. So we have seen that faith, therefore, is is truly intellectual. When you understand what intellectual assent is, it means to understand something with the mind and agree that it is true. But you have to understand that it is agreeing that the correct proposition is true. See, there's too many people who think that, well, it's inviting Jesus into my life, or it's, it's, I agree that the Bible uh, teaches that Christ is the way of salvation. But there's a vast difference in believing that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way to salvation and believing that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And the difference is that I can say I believe that Charles Darwin taught that man evolved from monkey to man. That is a different statement from saying that I believe that man evolved from Darwin to man. So people can say, I believe the Bible teaches something, and that doesn't mean they believe it. So the issue is, what do you believe? The second thing that we've looked at is that faith is not the same as inviting Jesus into your heart. God is the one who calls us. Jesus is the one who said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the one who invites us. We do not invite him. And there's a vast difference between um, believing something and inviting someone over for dinner. I can believe that President Clinton is, uh, or that Bill Clinton is the President of the United States. That doesn't mean I'm inviting him over for fried chicken on Sunday afternoon. There's a vast difference between those two concepts, yet it's amazing how few people really understand the difference and they, they want to uh, somehow uh, culturize the gospel by using uh, uh, these, these phrases that really don't communicate the gospel. So that's where we have been. We've been looking at this because in this 20th chapter of John, the issue is faith. And we know this because of where John concludes at the end of the chapter. He says, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, that is, these signs are written, have been written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Now, this morning we're going to do something that might confuse you, so I better tell you we're going to work through this chapter in a backward manner. I'm going to start at the end because that tells us the purpose, and then we're going to progress in a backward fashion to back to verse 11. We've already studied the first 10 verses, but to understand the real thrust of what John wants us to understand, and this is important in any kind of biblical exposition, that you understand what the author is trying to communicate. What does John want us to understand from this passage. Why is it that John includes just these events and not all of the other events that occurred in terms of Christ's post-resurrection experience? And that is because he is emphasizing this concept, something about the concept of faith. 
And in order to understand that, we have to look at the immediate context of verse 30 and 31. Verse 30 and 31, he's saying that many other signs were given. These signs were written that you might believe. Well, what sign is he talking about? He's talking specifically here about the sign of the resurrection. Now, there are eight signs in John, the eighth of which is the sign of the resurrection. But the immediate context is to what just happened in relationship to Thomas. Thomas is the apostle known as Doubting Thomas, who doubted the resurrection. And he said in verse 25, we read, um, he says, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Believe is the key word in this context. We're talking about what is saving faith. And he is saying, I'm not going to believe until I have the hard empirical data in front of me. Now, I have made it a point of saying that faith is not based on empiricism. This is a biblical concept. Scripture teaches that we walk by faith and not by sight. Sight is empirical data. Empiricism is the, is the idea that our knowledge ultimately derives from what we perceive with our senses. Sight Hearing, taste, touching. That this is what the basis for all knowledge ultimately comes from sense data. This is known as empiricism. Now the question that we must ask, because look at what happens here... Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it unless I have hard empirical data right in front of me that I can uh, examine with my own fingers, and then I'll believe. Look at verse 26. After eight days again, so a week goes by, a little over a week goes by, the events of verse 25 take place on Resurrection Sunday. So this would be a a week later on Monday. After eight days again, the disciples are gathered together, and Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, so in resurrection body, he, he dematerializes or moves through the walls or some way we show, show that, the, that, the, that the body, the resurrection body, is not subject to the same material laws as are uh, in effect for the mortal body. The doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger. This indicates, of course, Jesus' omniscience, because he knows exactly what Thomas is thinking and what he said, and he wasn't present in verse 25. Reach here your finger, see my hands, and reach here and hear your hand, and put it into my side. And be not unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered, notice it doesn't say Thomas did what he was told. He didn't finger the wounds. He just immediately believed. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me... Have you believed? In other words, you have believed on the basis of empirical data. Blessed are they who did did not see and yet believe. Now that draws a distinction between faith based on empiricism and faith based on a witness. An eyewitness account. 
See, those who believed and did not see are not, it's not that there's no empirical data or no witness involved. They're not operating on faith in a vacuum. They're believing because of somebody else's testimony. And that's our position in the church age. We are believing on the basis of the eyewitness testimony of the apostles that's recorded in Scripture. But this raises an important question about faith and the operation of empiricism and the operation of the intellect in rationalism. And the question is, what is the relationship of faith to evidence? What is the, another way of putting it is, what is the role of Christian evidences in the development of our faith? Perhaps you come from a background where you were taught not to ask too many questions, but just believe. And that we're somehow not supposed to get into the, all of the Christian evidence underlying the text, but just somehow just take it by faith. Now, the problem with that position, and that really is the position of, of, uh, of modern man, because at the, at the root of that is the idea that somehow faith is... Uh, not related at all to space-time historical evidence. You just believe. It's sort of a leap of faith. And see, this is what came into, into um, our modern contemporary thought as a result of a man from the late 18th century by the name of Immanuel Kant. And Kant taught that there's two realms of perception, what he called the... Uh, the noumenal and the phenomenal, and, and uh, I'll just uh, put it this way. Down here you have perceived things, and up, and which is just called, we'll put another way, just uh, the, the details of life. And then up here we'll put generalities. And in Kant's thinking, all you see is what you perceive. I don't know you, I just know my perception of you. In other words... All I can see is my own perception of details, but I can't know universals. And so you, it's like a house. And upstairs you have the realm of absolutes, the realm of universals, the realm of, of generalities. And downstairs you have the details. Now, what gives meaning to the details of life is absolutes and universals. But for Kant... You can't go upstairs. In this house that he's constructed, this house of knowledge that he's constructed, there is a cement floor here between the upstairs and the downstairs, and there's no staircase. So you can't know universal. So when I talk about right or wrong or absolutes, I really don't know absolutes. I only know what I perceive. I don't know truth as it exists in an absolute category. And so then, but nobody can live like that because you listen to anybody and they're going to make statements that, well, that's right and that's wrong. In fact, uh, I, I, a friend of mine has been uh, uh, copying me on a series of uh, email correspondences with an unbeliever where she has been witnessing to this unbeliever. And right off the bat, as she explained the gospel and the concept of the fall and, and God's um, imputation of Adam's original sin to the human race, this person says, well, I just can't accept that. That just doesn't sound right. Now, she made an, a mistake. She's going to hear this tape and 
be embarrassed, but I want to use this as a point because I've made this over and again as we've gone through John. When we're witnessing to unbelievers, we have to be very careful what we allow them to get away with. Because so often what happens, and this guy made these kinds of statements two or three times that, that are very uh, germane to my point. And that is we allow the unbeliever to raise certain questions and make certain statements that are illegitimate. And if we let them slide, we're granting their presupposition, and we've already lost the argument. In other words, by allowing something like that to stand, or some other questions to stand, it's like somebody asking you, have you stopped beating your wife? However you answer that question, you're in trouble. And we have to understand that there are certain things that, that they can't, get away with. And when an unbeliever, you're witnessing to an unbeliever, and they say, well, I don't understand that. That can't be right. You need to challenge them. On what basis are you saying it's right or wrong? What's your ultimate absolute? You know, you're making an absolute statement here, like the person who says, well, there are no absolutes. Well, is that an absolute or not? You know, if that's an absolute, there's at least one absolute, so let's start from there, that your, your system's faulty. So with Kant... Kant affected nineteenth um, century and twentieth century thought by saying that generalities or absolutes are are universals are really unknowable in themselves. We just but we can't operate as if they don't exist. Everybody, believer, unbeliever, talks in terms of this is right, that's wrong. Even if you're a drug dealer down in Harlem, you're still talking about you get ripped off. You say well, that was wrong. You know, you've still got some inherent concept of right and wrong, whether the concept is right or not or your conscience is correct or not, is not the point. The fact is that in your conscience you have categories of right or wrong that you operate in. We can't live in God's world apart from living as if these universals are true. But in the progress of of, uh, pagan thought, the development of pagan thought and ideas, Kant says you can't know universals in themselves, but we can't live as if they don't exist, so there is just sort of a leap of faith. That came in sometime later with Kierkegaard. You just operate as if they're true. In other words, you can't get up here. There's no no relationship of rationalism or empiricism to the universals. You just jump up. I've got to live as if it's true. And so that makes faith something that is a contradictory to. It doesn't have to be consistent with either the use of reason or the use of empirical data. So it juxtaposes faith with reason and empiricism. And now faith, therefore, for modern man is, is inherently defined as something that is non-rational. In other words, you believe it in spite of the evidence, not because it is consistent with evidence. And I'm being very careful because the truth of the gospel is not proved by reason or empiricism, but what I am saying is that it is consistent with the right use of reason and empiricism, which takes us back to understanding the fact that there are four basic ways in which we know things. The first is what we call rationalism, which is the idea that human reason can arrive at ultimate universal truths on its own. Empiricism, that it's not on the basis of reason, but on the basis of sense data. Mysticism, which says that I arrive at truth just on the basis of intuitive flashes. 
And then there is revelation. God has spoken absolute truth, and I believe it. See, faith operates at some foundational level in every system of knowledge. In rationalism, you have an inherent belief that somehow man's thinking is cogent enough and lucid enough and accurate enough to arrive at absolute truth and know it. You, you have a faith in the ultimate ability of the human intellect. In empiricism, your faith is in the, the veracity of human sense information and the ability of the mind to correctly interpret that sense information. In mysticism, your, your faith is in your intuitive uh, flashes. And in revelation, the object of faith is in the revelation of God. So in each system, there is an, an underlying presupposition of faith. And in witnessing sometimes, we have to uh, uh, challenge uh, the uh, thinking of the unbeliever. That's, that, that's really a sort of a negative thing, but sometimes it's necessary. For example, um, in this particular witnessing and uh, dialogue that was going on, uh, the believer was talking about how, how uh, uh, the Word of God has clearly and accurately revealed to us the, the truth of what went on. And, and the response was, well, those were just words. Typical postmodern response. Well, those are just human words, and human words are fallible, and human words can mean anything, and why would God try to communicate truth through words? Because words can be interpreted in a variety of different ways, and so that's such a, an inadequate means of expressing truth. Now, she made the same mistake at that point that I bet every one of us have made. I mean, I know I've made it, and I bet every one of you have made it. And that is you tried to prove that, that, uh, that the Word of God was, was inspired in the original languages and that it's precise. You missed the point. See, the way you answer that, if somebody says the word, that words are inherently infallible and can't communicate truth, is your response to that is, I don't understand what you're saying. See, his assumption is words can't communicate anything. So if you accept that, you've granted his assumption that words are meaningless. But he can't say words are meaningless without using meaningful words. There's an inherent contradiction to that position. And we can't let unbelievers get away with that. Because once you grant that assumption, you just said, yes, I've quit beating my wife, implying that you were beating your wife and now you're in trouble. So you just have to, we have to think in terms of how they're thinking and what they're really saying and the assumptions that underlie, are the view of reality that they have that underlie some of their objections. So that's the role of what's called apologetics. And uh, it's just learning to think a little more critically in terms of what people are saying when you're witnessing to them. The point is not to prove them wrong. It's not an intellectual challenge. And, and too often it's easy for us to slip into that sort of a debate mentality. And we always have to be careful because it's not that, that all of a sudden ego enters in and arrogance enters in and you, you've lost the battle. But the point is that we're simply trying to carefully and, and gently expose the fact that this person, the unbeliever, can't even live consistently with their own presuppositions. And so from this uh, faulty position they're trying to critique... Uh, Christianity. Now, there is a, that's the right use. What I'm trying to illustrate there is that the, that's the correct use of reason. And there's a correct use of mysticism. In the Psalms, the psalmist says, 
in thy light we see light. What the psalmist is saying is that the first light here is divine revelation. It is on the basis of divine revelation then that we are able to correctly understand and interpret the details of life and the data of life. So that any fact is not just a raw brute fact that is neutral. As soon as we see any fact, we're, our minds are automatically interpreting that fact. And rev- the revelation of God then gives us the categories for how to rightly interpret the empirical data. Now the question that I'm asking here, so we don't, so I don't lose you, is what is the relationship of faith to evidence? See, what modern man comes along and says that faith is inherently irrational. It's not on the basis of evidence because the evidence is flawed, because there is no evidence, because uh, this was just something that made up. The resurrection of Christ is just some sort of of, uh, idea that occurred to the disciples, or they had some sort of a psychological experience because of the trauma of these events, And because of their attraction to the Lord and their love for the Lord, they just imagined that he was still alive or that they just uh, had, it was a a spiritual, a sort of a subjective, personal, uh, uh, mystical experience. And there is no physical resurrection of the Lord. And that's how the modern man seeks to explain the resurrection. And so that faith then becomes something that is Despite the evidence, it is, it is just mysticism as opposed to something that is based on evidence. And what we see in Scripture is that the Christian is not a person who has put his mind in neutral. But in my opinion, Scripture demonstrates that, that the Christian is the person who has engaged its mind in the fullest. That Christianity does not ask, never does the New Testament ask the believer to trust God in spite of evidence, to trust God without providing evidence. There is a proper role of evidence. The problem with Thomas is that he's like a lot of unbelievers. They want, uh, they're asking for an inordinate amount of evidence. And as soon as the Lord, notice, as soon as the Lord appears, he believes the Lord. He doesn't go to the extreme because he recognizes the inadequacy of that. But I want to show you some scriptures that emphasize the fact that, that, that faith in scripture is not divorced from historical, rational evidence and observations. First of all, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, in the first four verses, Luke addresses his gospel to a Gentile unbeliever by the name of Theophilus. And I want you to look at how Luke expresses himself. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Notice how he brings it back to empirical observation. These were eyewitnesses. They saw these events. They were present. There's more than one. Just as those who were from the beginning, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. And then in verse 3, and it's 
showing up on the overhead now, seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. So see, Luke didn't just accept this apart from evidence. He investigates carefully. He interviewed eyewitnesses. He took down information from everyone that had uh, been involved with Christ, from, from his mother Mary to uh, the Pharisees to uh, uh, the disciples. He interviewed everyone, took down eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts. And then on the basis of collating all of that information, he wrote his gospel. So the Gospel of Luke is based in part, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, but in the process of God using Luke's personality and talents and skills, Luke functions as a, as a historian um, and collects all of the objective data on which to base his Gospel. So he's investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth. Notice there's no concept of relativism here. There's an absolute understanding of truth underlying the gospel. That you may know with certainty, with assurance, the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So I want you to notice that he is confident that the data supports the conclusions and that biblical faith for Luke means that there's content, that there are facts that must be uh, understood and evaluated and that before there is faith, the person must consider the facts and engage his intellect and believe on that. It is not despite your the evidence are on the base are contrary to your reason, but on the basis of the right use of reason and the right use of empirical data under the umbrella of God's revelation. See, the problem with empiricism and rationalism is that it is the independent or autonomous use of empirical data and reason independent from God, rather than using it under the umbrella of God. God's Word gives us the framework for interpreting the data, and then we use our minds consistent with that um, revelation. Turn to Acts 1. Acts chapter 1, Acts is Luke part 2, the second part of Luke's account to Theophilus. And in there we see the same emphasis on historical, verifiable information. Now, this is important because for those of you who are parents, you need to be teaching Christian evidences to your children. Sunday school teachers need to be teaching this here because what happens is when this is not taught in the Sunday school classroom or at home, then your kids will hear challenges to Christianity in the high school classroom or in the college classroom, and they'll come home and they'll think that, that Christianity is what the unbeliever has defined it as, which is sort of this subjective leap of faith that is divorced from evidence, and they will not have been grounded on the fact that there are clear, historical, verifiable evidences for Christianity. So that's why it's important. You don't have to put your mind in neutral to be a Christian. Acts 1. 
Luke writes, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by, what? Many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So Jesus never expected anyone to believe in him apart from the use of verifiable evidence. He appeared with many convincing proofs. The Greek word there is the word tekmerion. Looks like this. T-E-K-M-E-R-I. I-O-N. Tegmerion has the idea of that which causes something to be known as verified or confirmed. It's translated as evidence, proof, in legal documents. It indicates legal proof, convincing proof, and evidence that something is true. So what... This indicates is that Jesus did not want the apostles just to put their brains into neutral and accept his resurrection in some kind of vacuum that, oh, this is going to make me feel better now because uh, uh, I've got this idea that Jesus really didn't die. It's not some sort of self, self-deception or self-hypnosis, religious self-hypnosis to somehow get past the problems of life. That's what Karl Marx said, that that Christianity was just the opium of the masses. Somehow it just deadened their senses to the pain of reality. But Jesus is not articulating that. That's not the position of the New Testament. Let's look at another passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the longest defense of the resurrection in the New Testament. We have looked at parts of this already, and we will continue to come back to it again. It is one of the most important chapters in the New Testament. Paul explains the gospel in verses 3 through 8, and there he says, starting in verse 4, We believe that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, that's his Aramaic name, then to the twelve. Now, we'll come back and look at that in the order of appearances a little later on. But we see here that he apparently appeared to Peter alone. And that would be, and we'll have to emphasize this at a later date, that would be when Peter realized his forgiveness for the betrayal prior to the cross. It was a private meeting between Jesus and Peter that occurred on that Resurrection Sunday, sometime before Jesus appeared to the remainder of the disciples. Verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren. I mean, this isn't just some sort of subjective psychological or religious experience. But there are over 500 people that saw the physical resurrected Jesus. And Paul is saying these people are still alive, or most of them are, and you can go down to Jerusalem and interview them. This is historical, verifiable information. It only takes two witnesses to confirm a fact in a legal courtroom, and there are over 500 witnesses to the resurrection. Verse 7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Then we skip down a few verses to verse 14 through 17. 
Verse 14, Paul gives his argument on the importance of the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Everything we're doing is false. It's empty. It's meaningless. Christianity has no foundation if Jesus Christ did not raise physically, bodily from the grave. It says, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. We're liars if there is not a physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. Because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. That is, if in fact the dead are not raised. So Paul's point is that if there's no resurrection of Christ, there is no Christianity. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, verse 16 and then verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. His whole point is, if the historical factuality of Christ's resurrection is false then Christianity is false. Christianity is founded and grounded in a historical event that, has, uh, that is confirmed by witnesses. This is one reason why history is such a critical part of Christianity. But Paul is not the only one. Paul and Luke are not the only two who emphasize the uh, historical validity of the resurrection. Peter does as well. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter, we find a a similar statement emphasizing the empirical reality of the resurrection. 2 Peter 1, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. In other words, we saw this. There's not, it's not some subjective impression. We didn't have just some uh, psychological experience. It's not just some great idea that somehow we all thought would, would help people, but that we actually saw His majesty and it revolutionized our lives. So the apostles did not expect people to believe apart from critical thinking. So this is one of the things that, that I want to be a hallmark of my teaching ministry, and that is to teach people to think critically. And I remember when I was in seminary, getting into arguments with seminary, oh, well, the, the, people don't need to learn to think critically. Everybody, leave. one of the reasons people make so many mistakes in life is because they don't know how to think critically. They don't know how to think And one of the things that we have to learn as believers is how to think critically. And critical thinking means that you have to have some kind of absolute criterion, a grid, a framework for being able to evaluate and understand what's going on in life. And that means that the Christian life is something that is based on feeling. I mean, excuse me, it's not based on feeling, but it's based on thinking. It's thought. That's why we are to renew our mind. The word there is our thinking, not our emotions. Once we get our thinking in line, the emotions come along behind. But when we start operating on our emotions, then we get in trouble and we have a very difficult time thinking through what's happening. We're going to see an example of that in uh, what happened after the resurrection in John 20, verse 11 and following with Mary Magdalene. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then John comes along and substantiates this at the beginning of his epistle, his first epistle, in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. I want you to notice something here. Remember last time I 
announced that uh, when we finish the Gospel of John, we're going to move into uh, 1 John. Now, I want you to notice what, Pete, what, what John says in these first three verses and what happens right at the end of John 20, because they're going to tie together and we're going to see this connection. And we must understand this, that 1 John is really the mature thinking of, of John written later and is a commentary on much of what happens in the upper room discourse and happens right now at the end of the resurrection, what Jesus says in his parting words to the apostles. So pay attention to 1 John 1. What was from the beginning, what we heard, see, these are the, this is sense data here, empirical data. What we heard... What we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld, and our hands handled concerning the word of life, when the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And then he, he repeats it again. Make sure you didn't miss the point. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also might have fellowship with us. I want you to pay attention to that theme that's going to play a part in John 20. That you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. Notice, our fellowship with the Father is based on what? The veracity of the empirical data and their correct interpretation of it. It's not putting your mind in neutral, not going on some sort of emotional, subjective impression of truth. It's coming along and saying, on the basis of historical, verifiable data, I can have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because of the resurrection and the ascension. And that's exactly a sub-theme of John chapter 20. So let's go back and look at John 20, starting in uh, verse uh, 11, and look at the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the resurrection is not something that happened in some sort of mystical vacuum in the subjective thinking of the disciples. They didn't just make it up. They didn't generate this because it's some good idea. But we're going to see here in John's presentation of these events that this is something that radically transformed everyone who saw the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not, and, and, and an idea, a psychological event could not have that radical and transforming power. First of all, we're introduced to Mary Magdalene in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb. Now remember the events of that morning. Mary was the first one there. The ladies came out early in the morning towards dawn, and Mary Magdalene probably broke away uh, from the uh, others, got to the tomb first, looked inside. It's empty. She headed off to tell Peter and John. Peter and John ran. They looked in the tomb. That was covered in verses 6 and 7 and 8 of the uh, earlier in the chapter. And then uh, they they recognized the uh, resurrection, John believes, they leave, and then Mary finally comes along, and she's alone, and she comes to the tomb, and she is weeping. Now, the thing is that, according to uh, Luke 24, 5 and 6, when she arrived at the tomb early in the morning, the angels there had already announced to her the resurrection. She's not buying it yet. She is too emotional to operate on thinking and to believe. She is still weeping. The word here is clio, which means uncontrollable grief. It sometimes has the idea of weeping and wailing and was the same word used of the, of the masses uh, that were 
grieving over the death of Lazarus back in John chapter 11. It's not the word that was used for Jesus uh, weeping in that same chapter. There it was a very uh, unemotional type of uh, uh, tender weeping. It's a different word. But here it has a very emotional connotation, almost out of control. She's deeply immersed in her grief and the loss of the Lord. And the word's used about three or four times in this chapter, so it really is bringing out this, this one factor. Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped, she looks in the tomb, beholds two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? I want you to notice, the angels and Jesus both ask her the same question. Why are they asking her that question? Because they're trying to get her to stop weeping and start thinking. Quit emoting and start thinking. Why are you weeping? Answer the question. You've already been told that he rose from the dead earlier. Why are you here still on this uh, emotional jag? Woman, why are you weeping? She said, because they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they have laid him. So she doesn't understand the resurrection yet. Verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around. We don't know why she turned around, whether she heard something, whether the angels pointed, or, or whether she just sensed that someone was there. We have no idea. The scripture doesn't tell us. She turns around, and she sees Jesus standing there, but she's crying. She's just seen these angels in light. We don't know whether their brilliance clattered her vision, or whether she's just got her eyes filled with tears and she can't recognize them, or whether he has uh, intentionally camouflaged his appearance. The text doesn't make it clear. But she turns around, and Jesus is there, but she doesn't know that it's Jesus. And Jesus says to her in verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Same question. Why are you weeping? Why are you emoting right now? Let's stop and think. What's going on? What have you been told? Let's focus on facts. See, the thing is, doctrine always brings stability to our emotion. so important when we start getting emotional to recognize that and start seizing some promises that we can say to ourselves and maybe repeat, maybe you need to repeat them over and over and over again because once we get the, the doctrinal uh, promise in our mind, it will help us stabilize and calm down and be able to objectively evaluate what's going on and be able to correctly interpret the crisis, whatever it might be. Well, she's still operating on emotion. She thinks somebody's stolen the body, and the most likely person would be the gardener, because Jesus had just been crucified as a criminal, and under Jewish law, when a criminal is buried in a graveyard, he sort of uh, desecrates the entire graveyard. So she's thinking, well, maybe they just buried him here overnight. Now the Sabbath's over with. They moved the body somewhere else so that the, this uh, grave site would not be uh, desecrated. And so she thinks that this would be the gardener, because it's in the garden tomb. She says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. Notice she's polite, even in her grief and even in her, uh, even in her, her uh, emotion. She is still uh, polite and shows uh, deference to this uh, individual, even though he's just a gardener. And she says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And I will take him away. Still no comprehension of the resurrection. No understanding of what's happening. And then Jesus says to her, and he must have said it in a way, in a tone, that, that was 
typical of his relationship with her. He just called her by name and reminds us of the fact that as the chief shepherd, he calls his sheep by name and they know his voice. And she immediately recognized who he was from, from him saying her name, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which is a, an intimate term for a disciple to their master, their teacher. So Jesus says to her, Stop clinging to me. She turns and not only does she say Rabboni, she apparently threw her arms around him and grabs hold of him for dear life because she doesn't want to lose this relationship again. She's had this intimate relationship and fellowship with the Lord and it's been broken and now she doesn't want to lose that. This is bringing in the idea that John develops in John in 1 John and that is fellowship. She wants to maintain the close intimate fellowship that she has had. It is not, if you're using a King James Version, it is not touch me not. That is a, uh, that's a bad translation. It is the idea of don't hold on to me, don't cling to me. You can't hold on to me and make, that's not the way to maintain the fellowship now. The, the crucifixions occurred. This is the point of what he's saying. The crucifixions occurred. I have to ascend to the Father. The point is that if you want the kind of fellowship with me that you had before, you're going to get a greater fellowship. But before you can have that greater fellowship, I have to ascend to the Father so the Holy Spirit can come. Because it's going to be the Holy Spirit that is going to enable you to have this closer fellowship, this intimate relationship with me that is what you truly want and truly desire. So that is the point of what Jesus is saying here. And he says, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and my God and your God. And we remember that Jesus announced to the disciples in the upper room discourse that I must go to the Father so I can send the Holy Spirit to you. This is setting the stage. He has to ascend in order for the Holy Spirit to come, who is the one who produces the intimate fellowship. Then in verse 18, Mary goes and she tells the disciples that she has seen the Lord. So this is the first appearance that John emphasizes here, the appearance to Mary, that that faith is not apart from evidence, but it is based on evidence, and this is the first witness that he marshals for the evidence of the resurrection. Now, there are other appearances that take place that John doesn't mention. John, Jesus, we know from Matthew 28, verses 9 through 10, then appeared to the other women, to Mary and Joanna and Salome, and she appears to them in Matthew 28, 9 through 10. Then he appeared to Peter. Sometime this day, he has a appearance alone to Peter, and that's when Peter recognized his forgiveness. That was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. And then the fourth appearance is to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is in Mark 16, 12-13, and Luke 24, 13-32, where Jesus somehow cloaks or camouflages his appearance. And these two disciples are leaving Jerusalem, probably that Sunday afternoon. They've already heard the report that he's out of the grave, but they haven't assimilated the information yet. So Jesus appears to them, and he walks along with them. And this is a seven-mile walk, which would take two to three hours to make from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And there he starts going through the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, point by point, showing them that Jesus had to suffer and go through all the things that he did based on Old Testament prophecy. So he opens their eyes to that. They get to the house. He comes in, sits down for dinner, and breaks bread. And at that point, they recognize who he is. And then he disappears, and they run back to Jerusalem to report to the other disciples that they have now seen the risen Lord. 
And now it's later that evening when the events of verse 19 come into play. So now, during that day, Jesus has made various appearances, and John is going to use this as his second evidence. See, when he uses this idea, these have been written that you might believe, in one sense we've seen this use of evidence all through the Scripture, that he is marshalling these, all of these signs and these evidences like witnesses in a courtroom in order to demonstrate the truth of what he says. He doesn't give you all the information. He doesn't go to all the appearances. He only really focuses on these, these three events. Mary, the appearance to Mary, the appearance to the ten disciples here, and then the appearance eight days later to, to the, the, the ten plus Thomas. So it's evening on that day, the first day of the week, which is that, that resurrection Sunday evening. It was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, see, they're still scared to death. See, Mary is emotionally grieving in deep, profound grief, and her mentality is changed like that. And only the realization that he's still alive, physically and bodily, could pull her out of that pit of sorrow. And now we're going to see in the second evidence that these disciples the left in Jerusalem are scared to death. They're frightened. They think they're going to be arrested at any minute and crucified as well. And, and uh, John is showing that their whole attitude was uh, transformed by 180 degrees. And nothing less than the real appearance of Christ, psychological experience, subjective experience, or, or some sort of grand idea isn't strong enough to generate this kind of of shift. So he says, the, the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. This is the uh, greet, typical Jewish greeting, but there's a deeper meaning here because Jesus said that he would leave and my peace I would give to you. So Jesus is bringing them this announcement, fulfillment of what he said in the upper room discourse. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. See, it's empirical data. God is not saying believe despite the empirical data, but the empirical data confirms what you're believing. He shows them his hands and his side. See, he's not opposed to showing it. What Thomas is asking for is not simply empirical data, but he wants an inordinate display of empirical data. That's his problem. So Jesus shows them... His, his wounds, and they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them in verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So here's the connection now we're seeing between fellowship. He has to leave to go to the Father so we can have an intimate level of fellowship, and, we, and he has to go to the Father so we can receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this reception of the Holy Spirit or impartation of the Holy Spirit is temporary. It's not Acts 2. This is a temporary filling of the Holy Spirit given to the apostles. It's much like Old Testament filling. It's temporary to get them through the next 40 days or 50 days until the... Um, until the day of Pentecost. Uh, they were to have prayed for it earlier, but they didn't know enough to, and they didn't. And so Christ gives them this, the Holy Spirit now, to get them through these next 50 days until the Holy Spirit comes permanently. He breathes on them, says, Receive the Holy Spirit, and He gives them their, their marching orders in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, 
uh, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, this is a, uh, a statement that is not giving, it's not a substantiation of apostolic authority. It is a recognition that you are announcing the forgiveness of sins and condemnation. If someone believes in Christ, you, on that basis, you can say their sins are forgiven. If they do not believe in Christ, then their sins have not been forgiven. So this is a recognition that their authority is not in themselves. It's not some sort of apostolic succession, but is in the content of their message. That's where the authority lies, in their message, which is that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. And then we come to where we began uh, this morning in verse 24, when Thomas, who uh, was not at that meeting on that Sunday night, was not with him when Jesus came, and so when the disciples reported the resurrection to him, he then doubted and made his extravagant claim in verse 25. Now, the conclusion of all this that, that John wants us to pay attention to is that this is more than sufficient evidence that Christ was raised physically and bodily from the grave, and that faith is not contradictory to evidence. It is not contrary to evidence. It is not despite evidence. Faith does not mean putting your brain in neutral. Faith does not mean just leaping to some existential conclusion because it makes life feel better and solves your problems. But faith is based on a historical event that took place in space-time history and therefore is valid and is true. And we base our faith not on just some subjective impression, but on something that actually happened. So that our faith is reasonable, it is rational, and it is based on evidence. And so therefore, I always say, is only Christians are the ones who are truly beginning to use their thinking to its fullest extent. Everybody else is living in a dream world. And they are denying, they're living in a denial of historical evidence. And that's why history is such a battlefield. And people want to rewrite and revise history, especially on the Gospels, because if you can do that, then you can do away with the, with the uh, truth of the Gospel and somehow make Christ, try to make Christianity disappear. Now that brings us to the end of John 20 and the main part of the gospel. And next time we will come to John chapter 21, which introduces us to the uh, one of the last and most important encounters of Jesus with the disciples in two crucial events. And we'll look at that next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you that we have a faith that is not just some sort of subjective uh, impression, some psychological uh, uh, turnaround, it just, but it's based on verifiable data that was witnessed in history by, by uh, hundreds of people. That is the physical bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. Scripture says that we can know. We can know the truth, and the truth will set us free. And the truth is that, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not based on who we are or what we do. It's not based on moral reformation or church membership or any other human factor, but it's based exclusively on the uh, sufficient death of Jesus Christ on the cross as a payment for our sins. 
We pray that if there's anyone here that right now they would take the opportunity to put their trust in Christ alone. And that it is just a simple matter of your faith. God the Father knows what you believe and what you are trusting for your salvation. And if you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, then you will have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that the rest of us would be challenged and encouraged by the things that we have studied. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.